Uh, good morning, my name is Drew. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, welcome. Uh, September is here. Uh, I'm, you know, yesterday was the first day of college football. Um, I, I guess you could call it that. I think the Gators played a high school football team, but I didn't get any jokes. I didn't get any laughs. So, anyway, I'm not sure how that works. Uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, about about the five ministry strategies that kind of form the hub of what we understand it to be our job to do. And today we come to the last of those, and, and it is a, a subject that you probably have heard us talk a lot about, but you may not really kind of understand what it is that we mean when we talk about it, and it's the subject of church planting. Uh, in other words, we believe that if to be faithful to the mission that God has given us, uh, it's going to take more than just one church. We planted Church of the Redeemer here in Winter Haven. Um, to be a church that is going to plant other churches. We are a we are a daughter church. Actually, we are a granddaughter church. In 1996 and 97, Covenant Presbyterian Church in Lakeland, Florida, planted a church in downtown Lakeland called Trinity Presbyterian Church. Trinity has planted. Uh, we are the third church that Trinity has planted. So we are a uh, granddaughter church, uh, and we want to we want to daughter and plant and send out. Uh, lots of other churches over the next 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years in our city. And we believe that's part part of what God is calling us to do. So this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about that. And to do so, we're going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. But as a um, as a way of, of helping us understand exactly what Jesus is tapping into and in saying that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, we're going to look at a quite obscure passage from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, in true cowardice fashion, I'm not going to talk a lot about Daniel 7 because it's really strange and hard to understand and not as easy to, to preach. Uh, and we'll talk a lot more about Matthew 28. But nevertheless, it's there in your worship folder in, in the outline portion. Uh, it is also going to be printed on the screen behind me. So follow along with me as we read from Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and then 19 through, 9 through 14, and then moving ahead to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Let's read the scripture together this morning. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from another. Verse 9, and I looked, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And then I looked. Because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, 
to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Now, nearly every scholar that you will read uh, says that as Jesus stood up on the mountain in Galilee and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He was pointing to himself as the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel chapter seven of the son of man coming on the clouds. And so to understand what Jesus means to be teaching us in Matthew 28, we need to understand the meaning of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter seven. Now, that's problematic. Because there is a great deal of misunderstanding about the book of Daniel, and I've got to clear that up a bit, but I can't take too much time because we've got to get on to other things. So for whatever reason, let me just try to baseline it this way, okay? For whatever reason, um, a lot of times the things that Daniel is seeing in his dreams and his visions in this prophetic book in the Old Testament, they're attributed to events surrounding the second coming of Jesus or what people call the end times. Now, there are a couple problems with that, okay? And again, you're going to be thoroughly dissatisfied with how well I, I, I you know, cover all of this, but just for the sake of time. So without getting into too much detail, okay? Number one, contextually in Daniel. Contextually, Daniel's prophecies contain certain, I would call them time markers that fix the date of their fulfillment or at least the beginning of their fulfillment sometime during the reign of the Roman Empire, thus around the time of Jesus's first coming and not his second coming. OK, number two, the last days, the writers of the New Testament pick up this prophetic language of the last days and they say when they write about it. So, for example, Peter in his letters says this and even Paul at certain times in his letters, he says the last days aren't days that are still to come. They say we're living in the last days. In other words, the last days, as the prophets understood it, were kicked off when Jesus came in his first coming and continue all the way until he will come again at his second coming. Thirdly, the Son of Man uh, here, this is a prophecy of the Son of Man who would come. And it was one of Jesus's favorite titles of himself describing his earthly ministry as he walked among, you know, the, the inhabitants of Palestine 2000 years ago. And then thirdly, I mean, fourthly, excuse me, the fact that Jesus paraphrases Daniel 7:14 in his declaration in Matthew 28:18 shows that he understands that at least partially some of the fulfillment of all of these prophecies in Daniel's or Daniel are coming to bear upon what he accomplished while he was here on the earth and what he would continue to accomplish through his church as he ascended to the right hand of the Father to govern over all things in the interest of his people. Now, if you're not if you're not a Christian, if you're new to church, I, you know, you're probably you know thoroughly confused. Don't worry. I've been to seminary. I have a master's degree. It's interesting. My master's degree is in MABS. So I tell people I have a master's in BS, now, which stands for biblical studies. But the two are pretty similar a lot of times. Um, so all of us, you know, the professionals don't understand this stuff all the time either. But I, w- I just want to say that the reason we get tripped up in this, you know, in reading weird passages of scripture about horns and beasts and all this kind of stuff 
Um, the prophecies of Daniel are setting the stage for God's kingdom to come into the world in the midst of the risings and the fallings of the kingdoms of the earth. That's really what's going on there. And the book of Daniel is about God coming in power to overthrow all the kingdoms of the world and to rescue his people and to set up God's kingdom in the world. And so, for example, later in Daniel 7, the end result of all that Daniel's seen, he sums it up this way. Ready? He says, the court shall sit in judgment. This is verses 26 and 27, if you have a Bible. The court shall sit in judgment and the dominion of the enemies of God's people shall be taken away and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. And that's exactly the kind of thing that the Jews were expecting to happen when Messiah came. And that's why they rejected Jesus, because it didn't exactly play out the way they expected it to. Uh, Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. He was executed by the Romans. But you see, the mistake we could make is to forget that when Jesus showed up, he began to preach. Do you remember what his message was in Matthew 4, verse 17, and also in Mark 1? He preached the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here. But in Jesus, it came quietly. Okay. His dominion, his authority, his power that are spoken of here are being manifested, I would say, behind the scenes. Even 2000 years later, in large degree, it is invisible in our world and it's our job to make it visible. And that's what we've tried to capture in our mission statement on the front of your worship folder, that we believe it to be our mission to make his invisible kingdom visible. And we do this. By telling the story of our salvation in our worship Sunday after Sunday and declaring the kingdom of God come. We do it by living under his authority in community with one another. And that means living unselfishly toward one another and not selfishly showing compassion and mercy, forgiving and loving one another. And we do it by being on mission in our city, spreading the gospel in word and deed. And that's what we believe we're being called to here. But just look with me for a minute. If you can take your worship folder. And look at the call to worship from Ephesians chapter one. Just consider the teaching that Paul is giving us. And he says it in a way he says, my prayer for you is that your eyes would be open to understand the power that is at work in you. It's the very same power that rose Christ from the dead. And what Paul wants us to understand is that Jesus is advancing his kingdom in the world and he will continue to do so until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And he's doing it through his church which has been given an immeasurable power to accomplish the mission. And those words, they are in Ephesians 1 and what we read in Daniel 7, and then again in Matthew 28, what I want to say to you is it should create a certain posture in us. So much of the church, you know, if you look around, seems to be in retreat. We seem to be mourning the loss of the, of the greater days when things, you know, were hunky-dory but we should be advancing, not retreating. The mission is not static. It's dynamic. We are called to go to every tribe and tongue and people and language on the earth. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That we're convinced that what we're that what we're praying for in our city is bigger than just what one church can accomplish. And so it has been our intention from the beginning to be a church that plants churches. And so in the interest of talking about church planting in the context of the God, God's kingdom coming as we see it being talked about in Daniel chapter 7. I just want to show you two things from this passage, particularly in Matthew chapter 28. Number one, I want us to look at the people sent 
And then secondly, the God who sends. So just those two things. The people sent. And secondly, the God who sends. Okay? So let's look at those two things together as we work our way through this passage this morning. Let's talk about the people sent. Now, there's something that we're confronted with at the very beginning of our meditation on this text. If you're here and you're wrestling with Christianity or you're new to the Bible and to church, I want to be up, up with, as upfront with you as I possibly can be. If we're going to take what the Scriptures teach to heart, we have to believe in sentness and not thrownness. Okay? We have to believe in sentness, not thrownness. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, the dominant cultural assumption is that life is chaos and disorder. It's random and meaningless and full of chance and certain coincidence that we've been just, you know, in other words, we've been thrown into the world, into this chaos for no apparent reason. And whatever place we've been given, it's ours to decide what to do with. You know, our, our culture, if you just think our culture has no real good answer to the question why what's amazing to me though is that if you look closely enough if you look just under the surface you're going to see at the same time while while most of the people in our culture believe in this idea of just it's just chance and coincidence and random meaningless chaos and disorder if you look just beneath the surface you're, you'll see a romanticizing of the idea what will sometimes be referred to as destiny or fate in other words, that there might be something out there, some master plan that can make sense of our lives, and every once in a while you get a glimpse of it. So I, um, I'm very hesitant. My knees are shaking as I, I have a confession to make, and you're going to think less of me after I make the confession. At least the men in the room will, but it's okay. Um, I'm, I'm secure in the gospel and in my manhood. Um, I, I re- I'm a big fan of cheesy love story, chick flick kind of movies. Okay? See, the men are giggling. Thank you, Marta is too. Right on, Marta. Uh, and one of my favorite cheesy love stories is a movie that that, that was, I don't know if it was like the movie, and, I, and again, here, uh, it was on Oxygen this week, okay? I know, flipping through the channels. Oh, there's, I like this movie, there you go. So, make fun of me, it's okay. Um, but it's a movie called Serendipity. See, <gasps> the women, <sighs> I love that movie. And if you've not seen the movie, it'll probably, it's like, I'm t- it's been on every day this week, so it's probably on this afternoon, channel 44, if you have Bright House Cable, there you go, go home. Men, you know, watch it with your, with your wives, call it a date. It's the story of two people who, um, who meet and instantly fall in love. Uh, and John Cusack's in the movie, so if you grew up in my generation, I mean, he's like, he's the man anyway, so, you know. Listen to me, or what was that movie where he's holding the thing up? You remember that? Say, uh, say, yeah, say anything. Thank you, Joe. Joe Brandy's in the house in the back row. Um, so this movie is the story of two people who 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 meet and instantly fall in love, but for whatever strange reason, they decide that to leave their relationship to fate. And it's fascinating because if you just listen to their conversation, uh, the way that they they almost personify fate. Well, fate doesn't want us to do this. Well, you know, fate would. Well, I mean, they talk about fate as if it's a person, which is interesting. And so instead of exchanging phone numbers at the end of the night, you know, she writes her name and phone number on the back of an old book she's reading, Love in the Time of Cholera, by the way. And um, and he writes his on the back of a $5 bill, and they agree. And here's the way they, they agree that if the universe wants them to be together again, then they'll come across these items, and then that'll be their confirmation, and they can finally 
call one another, and, and that'll be how they know they're supposed to be together. But what happens is, is the years go by, and both get engaged. Uh, but but even as they're they're heading towards their their marriages, you know, their wedding days, neither of them can shake the idea of what they might have missed out on. And no matter how hard they try, you know, they can't get away from the the reality of this person that they just can't shake. And so, you know, there are too many coincidences. There are too many signs that they're supposed to be together. Uh, and so the whole movie kind of documents how they're both kind of looking for one another, even as they're about to walk down the aisle, which is kind of weird anyway. And women probably don't like that part of the movie. But, you know, but there's this one line from the end of the movie that gives a nice summary statement of what I think the main idea of the story is. And it's one of the characters says it of another character in the midst of all of this trying to, you know, track the other person down. He says it this way, and it's really fascinating. He says he, he Jonathan, who's the lead character, he courageously clung to, to the belief that life is not merely a series of meaningless accidents or coincidences, but rather it's a tapestry of events that culminate in an exquisite, sublime plan. And that really, that really is the point the movie's making. That if we're going to live and to love with the same sense of purpose and vitality and romance we all long for, that we must possess, he says it this way in another place, a powerful faith in fate or destiny. Now, I want to say the movie gets it right. Sort of. Because as Christians, we believe that life is not merely a series of meaningless accidents accidents or coincidences, but a tapestry of events that culminates in an exquisite, sublime plan. We wholeheartedly affirm that against the typical view of our culture, but we also affirm that the plan is not random or chaotic or impersonal. It's the product of a will. The plan is the product of a personal desire. And if you look at Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus uses a word there. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's a word, that word authority, that refers to his sovereignty and to his government. Jesus is claiming to have power and to have the authority to do as he pleases. He is claiming to have the right to make decisions that affect our lives. It means, and it's painful to hear, but it means he gets to tell you and I what to do. In every detail, every circumstance, every decision, every joy, and every heartache is working together to fulfill his will and his plan. There's a plan. There's a design. We've not just been randomly thrown into the world. We are being sent into the world. We have a mission. And so the, so Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I sent you. Now, what I want you to see is, here's what this means. If you're a middle school or a high school student, Jesus has sent you to the school that you're at. And even if you're homeschooled. If you're a teacher... Jesus has sent you to that school, that principal, that faculty, and those kids. If you own a business, Jesus has sent you to those employees, those clients, those suppliers. If you teach kids worship at our church, Jesus has sent you into the lives of those kids. If you're a mom, Jesus has sent you to the children he's given you, and, I need, need, and you're exactly what they need. I mean, whatever neighborhood you live in, Jesus has sent you there. If your job changes and you have to move across the country, Jesus is sending you. 
Just as the Father sent him into the world, in John chapter 20, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And what this means is, it means that we are in the world on purpose. If you look there in verse 19, the word translated go. It's interesting. Again, you miss this in the, in the, um, in the translation, but in the original language, the word there, that's not the verb. Isn't that fascinating? That's not the verb in those in those in those verses. The verb is the verb make disciples. Go there is a participle. It's a verbal adjective. It, in other words, it is um, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not telling us what to do. It's Jesus is assuming that it's it's describing who we are meant to be. He's assuming our going, and then he's telling us what we're to do as we're going. And so all of this means this one thing that we're in the world on purpose that we have a mission, that just as Jesus was sent by his Father, and therefore he said, I can only do what I see my Father doing, I can only speak what I hear my Father speak, that we are to live with the exact same purpose, living for his glory and not our own. But look here and let's see very quickly what he's sending us to do. And what is the specific assignment he's giving us in these verses? If you look in verses 19 and 20, Jesus commands us to go, and to make disciples, which we talked about last week. And then he says, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the reference to baptism there means that, that, that he's sending us, as he sent his disciples, not just to seek conversions. He's sending them to plant churches. I mean, to baptize someone was to incorporate that person into the worshiping community. And historically, the church has always believed that when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when a person comes into a relationship with God through Jesus, they automatically come into a relationship with his people. So the two go hand in hand. And so if you read the scripture carefully, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you at this point. If you read the scripture very carefully, you will see that nearly all, nearly all of the evangelistic challenges are not simply calls to share our faith. They're calls to plant churches. Now, listen, listen to um, a couple of guys that I respect talk about the success of this. Tim Keller, who is a pastor in our denomination that we quote a lot, has written a lot about church planting. Um, he says, the vigorous, continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for, get these two things, the numerical growth of the body of Christ in any city and the continual corporate renewal and revival of existing churches in the city. Nothing else, not crusades, Outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting. See, Peter Wagner has said, planting new churches is the most effective evangelism methodology known under heaven. <laughs> and the studies show this to be true. OK, here, here are just some statistics to, to just wrap your mind around. The, the studies that are the most recent that are out show that new church plants uh, five years or under gain 60 to 80 percent of their new members from unchurched people, whereas churches that are 10 to 15 years old gain 80 to 90 percent of new members by transfer from other congregations. Church plants are effective, are the more effective than established churches at reaching new people groups, reaching sociocultural groups in the community. They're more effective at reaching new people or people new to the community, and they're more effective at reaching younger and emerging generations. The data is absolutely clear about that. And so 
what that means is, is we've got to plant churches. Now, there's an obvious objection, isn't there? Aren't there enough churches in our city already? The answer is yes, we have enough churches in our city. If you just look through the yellow pages, but no, we don't have enough new churches and we don't have enough spiritually vital churches. And so we believe we believe that part of what we're going to have to do is to be a ascending place where we send out church plants from this place uh, as a way of renewing the vision for seeing a vital ongoing transformation of the body of Christ in our city happen. OK, that's I just want to say that to you. You need to know that's part of what we believe that we're called to do here. But one of the spiritual dynamics that we're going to have to keep in the forefront of our life together is to be outward faced to be constantly thinking about those who are not a part of us instead of thinking about how we can make it as easy and comfortable for ourselves. We're going to have to choose the mission over personal comfort. Um, You're going to have to do that in your community groups. Uh, If you're in a community group, I know there's a couple of the community groups that that don't that, you know, are a little bit perturbed at me right now because I keep coming to them and saying, I know y'all are having a great time together, but guess what? We're going to have to split this community group sometimes. No, we love one another. No, there's a mission that calls for something greater uh, than 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 what is comfortable and easy for you. There are people in our city who do not know Jesus, and we've got to choose to go after those people instead of just staying in our nice, safe little bubble. So we're going to have to choose the mission over personal comfort in church in, in community group multiplication strategies in an approach to church planting, and that's just hard. There's a lot of there, there's a lot of things that we're going to have to confront. I remember what what Jesus said in John chapter 12, which we looked at last week. He said the only way for a seed to produce a harvest is for it to fall into the earth and die. That means in, in the only way that we will be fruitful as a people and see ourselves multiplied into other lives through discipleship and to see this church multiplied into other churches is if we die. Parents. Your parenting is going to be successful. It will be because you die. Husbands, if your wives are to become beautiful and radiant and holy as Jesus longs for them to be, it will be through your death. And if we're going to go into our city and make disciples and plant churches and pray God's kingdom come and multiply ourselves, then the one thing that we can be assured of is we're going to have to die. We're going to have to be generous. We're going to have to go without and make decisions that hinder our own ministries so that others may flourish. That's what it's going to take. We believe that. So come back again to the word go there at the beginning of verse 19. If you see it there, it's it's also a word that that talks about this very thing. It describes not only the act of going, but the cost, because it's a word that really could be translated depart or leave. Not only that, but it's also the derivative of a root that refers to a trial. So Jesus is saying to follow me, you're going to have to get up. And leave comfort and security and predictability behind and come on mission with me. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. You're going to have to leave behind a lot of stuff you love. And I'll be completely honest with you. When I think about that, it scares me to death. It makes me sad and afraid. I'm afraid of failing. I'm afraid of being radically generous and suffering because of it. I'm afraid of not looking out for my own interests because if I don't, who will? You know, my fear exposes the idolatries that I live with, my love of comfort, my self-sufficiency, my overwhelming desire to fill my life with all the things I can to ensure my own protection. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be faithful, you're going to have to walk away from all of those things. 
So where in the world do we find the courage to do that? How does that come? And what's beautiful about this passage in Matthew chapter 28 is that if you look at the, at the command in verse 19 to go and make disciples and baptize, it is sandwiched in between two beautiful, wonderful promises. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples and baptize and teach them to observe all of my commands and I will be with you. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And I will be with you. And so let's look at those two, uh, those two promises together for just a minute. And then we'll wrap up. OK, look at verse 18. Jesus's claim again is astounding. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, don't miss that connection. Don't miss the therefore. I mean, Jesus is being very deliberate. He, you know, why go and make disciples? I mean, where's the courage for sacrifice come from? Jesus is sending them. That's where it comes from. He's sending them and he can't be stopped. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So just meditate on that with me for one second. Jesus has all authority. He spoke light. And light shone in the darkness. He said, hello, land. And there, splashing up through the oceans, came cliffs and mountains and sandy beaches. I mean, Jesus has all authority in heaven. The angels and Satan and his demons do his bidding. He holds the stars in place. His voice calls the sun over the horizon in the morning. Jesus has all authority, not only in heaven, but on earth. And that means that every drop of rain that falls to the ground has to get his permission before it falls. Every lightning strike hits the mark he is assigned. The wind and the waves obey his voice. Every king the world has ever known is in his hands. He has power over cancer and AIDS. Every hair on every head in this room is counted. Every day of every life is written down in the books of heaven. There is none greater than him. There is none in all the universe more powerful than him. There is nothing too difficult for him. There is no higher authority than him. Therefore, go. You see, man, that, that doesn't get an amen right there. I mean, seriously. I mean, do you, I mean, do you feel that? And my cowardice and my fear and the way that I the way that I just shrink up and try to grab a hold of all the things that I can and keep is just it's just the indication that I've not yet believed Jesus where he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Or I think he's going to take that power and that authority and use it against me instead of using it for me. And that's where the second promise is just as beautiful. Because this one who says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him also says to us that we can go because he promises to be with us. You see that in verse 20? Behold, I'm with you always. And I really think that means two things. It's a statement of his disposition towards us and it's also a promise that looks to the coming of the Spirit to be in us. So you see, Jesus says, he says, go and know that I love you. Go and know that I delight in you. I'm for you. That all of my power and my authority are at your disposal. That I will never leave you. So don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for your needs. You're, you're mine. And just think. Think about how costly it was for him to be able to make that declaration. I mean, what is the truth of the gospel? 
In eternity past, God the Father looked at Jesus and he said, go. And Jesus went, he left heaven to come to earth on a rescue mission to save sinners. And think about what he left for you, for me. And because he obeyed the call to go, he has worked salvation for us. And now God is for us. He delights in us because on the cross he turned against Jesus and all of the wrath that had been stored up from eternity past came down upon him and the sentence of death fell upon Jesus and he descended into hell, the creeds say, but death and hell could not hold him. And on the third day he rose again. And on the other side of that great work of salvation, Jesus can turn to you and look you in the eye and say, I will be with you. But notice there, he says, before he makes that promise, he says, behold, you see that? Behold. In other words, he's wanting to get our attention. Put your mind on this. Pay attention to this. Set your mind. Here's the motivation. You've got to see it. He's saying you've got to look into the scriptures and you've got to see that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then you've got to hear my voice saying, I will be with you. And you've got to put your mind on that. You've got to see it with your eyes. God's got to open your eyes with spiritual sight to really begin to believe in the depths of your bones that these things are true. He says, behold, I'm with you always. Do you believe that? Has it gotten down deep inside of your heart? And then consider that he left heaven for earth and then he left earth and went back to heaven and from heaven what the Bible teaches us is, is that Jesus has sent the Spirit into the world. And the Spirit is the power of God, the power that raised Christ from the dead, now at work in us. And the work that he's calling us to, whether it be mothering or teaching or owning a business or whatever it may be, church planting, the work that he is calling us to is his work. Church planting is Jesus's work. I will, remember, I will build my church. What's he say? the gates of hell will not prevail against them. So we just get to come along for the ride because there's a power that's not working us. I will be with you. Jesus in us through the spirit animating our lives towards obedience. So you see, this is a beautiful, beautiful summation of the work that he's called us to do. As we're called to go and give ourselves away for the sake of the people he's calling us to care for, the churches he's calling us to plant, Whatever it may be, the mission that he is calling us to as a church, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm with you. So the father sent the son into the world to save his people and the creation from sin. The father and the son sent the spirit to the church to empower us to carry on Jesus's mission. And now the father, the son and the Holy Spirit are sending us into our city and to every nation on earth to make disciples, to plant churches, all for his glory. And so let's pray and ask him to continue to come and do that in us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we confess to you that our that our eyes do not work as they should and our ears do not hear as they should and our hearts do not believe as they should. And even in the face of such overwhelming evidence to the truth of what you declare in these verses, we still live in such deep unbelief. That even though you you uh, you shed your blood 
upon the cross as the payment for our sins. And even though you subjected yourself to scorn and ridicule and ultimately to death. We still don't believe you when you say you love us. And that you're for us. And so we live lives not of self-giving love, believing that we will be cared for by you. But we live lives where we hoard and we attach ourselves to all manner of things, trying to um, meet the needs of our hearts rather than rejoicing and resting in you. I pray you forgive us. I pray this morning that in some way that is beyond uh, my feeble attempt to open these things to us, that you would come and you would begin to work in our hearts through the power of your word to convince us of the truth that all authority has indeed been given to you and that you promise to uh, be with us as you send us and as we go and that we would begin to really in the depths of our souls believe that and that it would begin to transform the way we live. And that courage would replace cowardice. That boldness would come up out of our fear that our insecurity and our idolatries would be overcome by, by deep, profound faith in the truth of the gospel. You, indeed, you are the God of this city. And there are greater things that are yet to be done. And so we pray that you would continue to come and make us the kind of people that you can work and use uh, to see uh, you glorified in our city and our world. This is our prayer, and we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.